welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Hi there, and welcome again to the Defender Podcast. This is Rick Morton uh, coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. I'm without my co-host today, Herbie Newell, because we're doing things a little bit different today. Uh, and so today on uh, on our podcast for uh, December the 29th, 2021, we wanted to bring you a little content, wanted to reach back into the archives for a best of episode. Uh, we're going to go back to uh, May the 19th, 2021, I had the opportunity to sit down with Pastor Ed Litton, who is the sitting president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's also the pastor of Redemption Church in Mobile, Alabama, uh, a church that's, that have been friends and partners of Lifeline for a long time. And it was my pleasure to be able to sit down with Ed and talk about uh, life and ministry and a long-term investment. We talked about um, grief and hope and uh, just a lot of things and uh, it was just really a rich interview and a lot of fun to do and so i hope uh, you will enjoy it uh, listening to this best of episode we'll be back um, very soon with uh, with brand new episodes starting out the year for the defender podcast but until that time um, sit back relax maybe grab a cup of coffee as you uh, as you listen to pastor ed and i uh, have a chance to visit uh, back earlier this spring Welcome to our interview with Ed Litton, pastor of Redemption Church in Mobile, Alabama. Um, Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rick. Thank you. It's an honor to be uh, with you and to be with Lifeline. Great organization. Man. Um, well, Ed, we um, have already told our listeners a little bit that you're the pastor at Redemption Church. You've, you've been there for almost 27 years. 27 um, years this July the 1st. Yeah. Man, that is, that's pretty exceptional, right? In, uh, in, in the well, lives of most people churches. People ask me most the longevity, and I, I say, well, when I wanted to leave, nobody wanted me to leave. Uh, no, no other church wanted me. And then when they wanted me, I didn't want to leave. So, so it's just <laughs> kind of worked out that way. Uh, God is uh, merciful. I probably would not have been voted in college and seminary the guy most likely to stay a long time uh, because I was pretty dramatic and had all these crazy ideas and all my friends agreed that I'd probably have a short tenure in every church I pastored. Turns out it's not what happened. So that's awesome. Well, um, well, man, we're excited and and thankful to have an opportunity to be able to sit down with you today and just talk a little bit about the church and orphan care and uh, just some things that, that, uh, that matter to us both and, and to our audience. And so how about as we get started, um, just tell us a little bit about you and, and, and your family, just to help our sure. listeners get to know you a little bit. Well, I, um, I, I married the love of my life uh, when I was 20. She was 19, and we shortly turned 20 and 21. I was one year older than Tammy. Uh, we met in college at the University of Arizona at a great church in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, fell in love, went, uh, went off to seminary, finished there, and started having a family. We have three children, uh, two boys and a girl, and we planted a church after seminary in Tucson, Arizona. We were there for seven and a half years called Mountain View Baptist Church. And then the Lord brought us to Mobile. And so we've, uh, we've never been to Alabama. I used to make fun of guys in seminary from Alabama 
because they're always talking about Roll Tide and War Eagle, and they they would pine for Alabama. I go, guys, there's other states that start with the letter A. There's Arkansas, there's Arizona, there's Alaska, but uh, they weren't interested in going there. And so the joke was on me. God brought me here. I love this state. I love the people. I tell I tell folks I'm a missionary to rednecks, and uh, absolutely enjoy it. And great, great people. And so it's it's been a delight for the last 27 years. They are very patient people too. That's fantastic. So I know everybody, since we have a fair concentration of, uh, of folks in the state of Alabama that listen to the podcast, is it is it Roll Tide or War Eagle? Where, do, where, where did you land? You know, I actually, uh, I was a big Arizona fan, so I stayed out. But I found out when I got here, everybody's so SEC. They said, yes, we've heard of other conferences. <laughs> go, yeah, it's Pac-10 <laughs> at the time. It's Pac-12 now. So I've, I've fully converted. At first, I tried to stay out of it. And uh, I just finally gave up and said, look, whoever wins the most, that's mine. So, (laughs) man, that's as a pastor in the state of Alabama, that's a that's a pretty safe deal. Right. Yeah. uh, I'm a coward when it comes to that. There you go. Well, (laughs) I have locks me for that. So I have a lot of respect for that. So. um, So so as you know, as we talked about as a as a long tenured pastor, pastor at uh, Redemption Church and and, you know, making a, a long investment in that local body of believers, um, you've led the church through a lot of things, obviously, and and have negotiated kind of this idea of um, being involved in mercy and justice ministry, um, but not but not losing the gospel, like maintaining a heart for evangelism and a heart for discipleship, even as you're uh, exercising mercy ministry and and. So, Ed, I'd love if you would just kind of unpack for our listeners, like how how have you struck the balance uh, between helping your church to be responsive to those things that we're called to do to take care of people's tangible needs and 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 yet not lose a heart for seeing people come to know Christ and and seeing people follow Jesus. Yeah. I, you know, my favorite quote by Chuck, Chuck Swindoll was uh, balance is the place. I cross on my way to another extreme. At least that's been my life story. And, and I've never, uh, walking is a balancing act. And so I guess if you're conscious of it, uh, you would have to stop and say, I've been to a lot of different extremes. I started out very strong in the pro-life movement. And uh, in the early days of, of ministry for me, I had a pastor mentor who was involved with Operation Rescue and so I, I spent some time there, and I realized I realized the seriousness of the life issue. But I also saw that that approach wasn't the most effective because it remained sterile, disconnected from the realities in people's life. And so, as a pastor, I became intimately involved with uh, the the movement to to help women in times of crisis pregnancy. And so, we've been a strong supporter of our Save a Life ministry now called Women's Resource Center in Mobile. And we're grateful for that kind of ministry. But we also know that there's other issues. Now, let's just be honest, uh, Rick. I grew up at a time in Southern Baptist Life Seminary that anybody who did or talked about social justice or justice ministries was considered immediately liberal. Well, I'm as conservative as you can get, I, I think. And, and I believe uh, I, I'm conservative spiritually, politically. I'm, I'm conservative theologically by all measures. But but the truth is, there is clearly in Scripture uh, a, a call, both Old and New Testament, a call to seek justice. 
Um, Of course, Micah 6.8 says, and what does the Lord require of you? That's a very important question. He says to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, A crisis happened in my life 14 years ago. My wife that I just mentioned, uh, Tammy, was killed suddenly in a car accident. And that has a way of altering perspective. And over, over a period of tremendous mercy and grace, God working in my life, uh, I, I did become more, more intensely sensitive to people's hurt and pain. And then I really had to repent of a lot of things that I was kind of a bull in the china closet over. And, and so you can get caught up in the political thoughts and, and the thought of the day, and you really miss the fact that there are real people on the other end of that opinion that you have. And so we just started exercising concern more um, in, in our church, and our church has responded beautifully to it. Uh, what we attempt to do, of course, is to, to, to seek justice, love mercy, uh, which to me is, is a beautiful parallel to each other because the loving mercy part is what God has for us. That's the gospel. And so we seek justice knowing that there will never be perfect justice on this earth but that we at least honor the pain and suffering of other people, that we seek to try to right wrongs where we can. But at the end of the day, it is the gospel that transforms people's hearts. And so it, you have to do both, and you have to walk and chew gum at the same time in this. Uh, and, and the more you do, the more I think it expands the influence of the gospel in your city. Uh, you, you mentioned I've been here for 27 years. Many of those years, I wasn't as concerned about Mobile as I should have been. And, and so that's part of what God was dealing with me about and that the people around me mattered and uh, whether their skin color was different, whether they voted like me, whether they think like me or not, uh, the gospel requires that I seek, uh, seek justice for them, to love them and to tell them of the mercy of God. So it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting journey and a part of that wobbling back and forth in my balance walk. That's fantastic. You know, the, the Ministry of Lifeline actually came out of Save a Life and, and was a part of the, the Save a Life movement. We, uh, we started, we're planted here by Wales Goebel in, uh, in Birmingham as a part of uh, Save a Life. And really the thing that, that really um, was the, the sort of the central question in the forming of Lifeline was the discipleship of women who were coming to Save a Life into the Crisis Pregnancy Center who, who was continuing to walk with them after, you know, and, and so, um, so I, I love that because, you know, we, we believe very definitely as a, as a parachurch ministry that serves in this area, that, that ultimately is the work of the local church to, to yeah. continue, you know, with these women. And we know that they're, you know, they're created in the image of God. They're valuable. They're in, in adoptions. They're, you know, they're, they're sort of that, sometimes silent or sometimes unseen part of the equation. But the truth is um, that they are as in need of the gospel and in, 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 in as in need of the, the, the community and the, the love and the support of the body of Christ as, you know, as the, as the more obvious parties. And so um, it's, it's just great to hear. And, and we're really thankful for our partnership with you and, and, and with your church and, and the way that you, you guys have come alongside us, uh, the way we've seen families be ministered to, but also the way that, uh, that your church is invested in the ministry of Lifeline uh, to help us be able to minister to um, women in crisis and, and, and to do that through uh, the option of adoption. You know, it's interesting. I would say that as a pastor, not everything is initiated by me. 
And to me, the best things are not initiated by me. And, and adoption came up early on in the process. We had a lot of people that were adopting internationally. We had a lot of people that uh, they formed groups, they formed support systems that are still in place. And they've been doing this for 20 some years. And, and that is that's so encouraging on that end. Uh, I've personally been involved with uh, just seeing, uh, first of all, let me tell you something about adoption that I have. So first of all, my wife, Tammy, was adopted. She was one of four children in her family that George and Betty Hull adopted. And so we had a, a really unique perspective on it. And, and, and what's, what was interesting is that uh, what I've seen in scripture is that people who struggle with infertility in the Bible and people who are adopted in the Bible all reveal the glory of God and how God works. It's like hmm. we, my wife and I, I've hiked the Grand Canyon twice, and we went through recently on a, on a raft with a creationist. And he said, it's like God opened up the Grand Canyon to show how he made the world. Wow. And it's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. But even in this area, adoption is God opening to the world that he is directly engaged with the lives of people that others have thrown away. In some cases, others could not help. Others were uh, in their own struggles and, and difficulty. And there's mercy for that. Uh, but, but it's so important that the body of Christ, like in the early church in the book of Romans, uh, we see a Roman church that would go picking up children. Uh, history tells us they would pick up children cast out into the woods or left on a doorstep at night. And, and they would listen for the cries of babies. And uh, how compelling. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the American church in some ways has, we're coming, I hope we're coming out of a season of political involvement that that is too to an extreme and 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 let me tell you my concern is that when we identify with one party we are, we are always weakened by it we're we get the lesser end of the stick and uh, and now that stick's being used to beat us up with but but the the interesting part of all that is though if we can if we can navigate that and i'm very passionate about my political beliefs however uh not when i'm preaching the gospel and not when i'm leading our church because uh, it, I don't want to be identified with just one position because the gospel is greater than that. Here's what, the, what I've noticed in scripture, Rick, is that God takes people into the lowest form of servanthood in a city, and then he raises them up. He did it with Joseph in the book of Genesis. He does it with Ezra. He does it with Nehemiah. He does it with Esther. He does it with Daniel. But what he does is he raises them up to a place of influence that they speak to power. And it, it's a beautiful thing to see what God does when his people humble themselves back to Micah and, and basically say, Lord, I want to seek you and, and, and what you're doing. Because God is the one who seeks justice. And that's that's a beautiful picture, Ed. And I, I think, you know, we talk a lot here in in our ministry about about God raising up mm. a generation of adopted kids um, and a generation of kids who've you know been cared through the foster care system. Who who are who who meet Christ and who know Christ and and ultimately become disciple makers and that that maybe some of even the hope for the nations is uh, kids that have come from the nations who have who've been you know um, who've been able to to grow up in a family where they've been taught to know and to follow Jesus and they've given their hearts to Christ and and ultimately then God using them uh, right. to for you know for transformation and and so. But, you know, one of the things we, we realize, obviously, is that, um, that sometimes the, the journey in 
adoption and the journey in foster care is, you know, kind of complicated and, and difficult because of trauma and neglect and abandonment and, and those kind of things and, and, and sort of those, those hurts that, that come to families. And I know, um, you know, part of your story is that you're no, you're no stranger um, to hurt and, and to trauma. Um, that uh, your story and, and your wife, Kathy, and, and her story, and even how, you know, the Lord brought the two of you together is, is all part of um, God's unfolding of, of, a, of a work in your life that is, is also, um, you know, fraught with some, some hurt and some trauma. And so uh, would love just for you to talk a little bit about, uh, about that and about the, about the, the, the difficulty that you walk through and then just how the Lord has taught you and how the Lord met you in the midst of difficulty and pain and, and ultimately how that's, how that shaped you as a, as a pastor and as a believer. Well, yeah, Tammy was killed 14 years ago. There was another pastor from Denver, Colorado named Rick Ferguson had a tremendous ministry there at the Riverside Baptist church. Rick was killed in a car accident uh, almost 20 years ago. And so he left a wife and three children, uh, very similar, two, two boys and a girl. And all of, we were at the same stage of life. So Kathy and I both came to each other having a very similar experiences and stories of grief and suffering. And then God brought us together. And we are so grateful. I, I said, Tammy was the love of my life. Well, God has given me a new love of my life. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But it's not, it's not merely a romantic story. It is a um, it's a story that God clearly put together because he had a purpose in our pain and our suffering. You, you cannot preach the gospel and ignore the reality of suffering. Suffering is what our Savior did in order to save us. And it's what he does in order to sanctify us and, and to make us vessels that he uses. So Jesus never runs from suffering. Matter of fact, he runs to suffering. He, that's why the Bible says he's near the brokenhearted. And so we've had to learn uh, through our own grief and suffering. By the way, I tell people, my, my experience with grief proved something to me. It proved that grief is the most narcissistic experience in life uh, because you're in such pain, you can't think of anything but yourself. And, and, and it, you know, you think, and, and the, the worst part of it is friends and family think you're justified to be narcissistic mm. because you've lost so much. And so a lot of people don't help you. They, they, they do the wrong thing. They, they turn us deeper into ourselves. By the grace of God, he has helped me see that, and he has helped me not turn deeper into myself, but deeper into him. Mm-hmm. And, and what I found is that he was tenderizing my heart toward racial injustice. He was tenderizing my heart toward death and loss and suffering, tenderizing my heart toward a host of things. And it comes at a time in my life where our culture desperately needs the gospel. And, and, but the church is drifting away from communicating the gospel to the culture. I, I think one of the greatest things we can do to share the gospel is to adopt, uh, to engage with people that are hurting people in crisis situations where we can love people. We can love our neighbor. We can demonstrate what Jesus said in what we call the great commandment. And, and I think uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about the Southern Baptist Convention, but I think one of the struggles we have yeah, is, is that we have separated what we call the Great Commission from the Great Commandment. Mm-hmm. And the Great Commandment is inseparably tied to that because it's our credibility in the Great Commission. 
if we say do this, do this, and do this, we're no different from any other religion on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. It's not do, it's what's been done for us. And, and so we've got to be able to demonstrate that there's credibility of life change because we've put our faith in Christ the way we're asking other people to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and he has. He has graciously and mercifully changed my life uh, from, from a, a self-centered, narcissistic sinner uh, uh, laden with sin and uh, evil desires. Uh, he has changed my heart, and uh, I, my struggle's not over with sin, but uh, I am victorious in Christ, and I'm grateful for that. So yeah, trauma has played a huge role in my life. The the other side of it, just very briefly, is that my oldest child, uh, his response to his mother's death was to dive headlong into opioid addiction. And so for the last 10, 12 years, it's been a nightmare in his life of uh, living on the streets, um, having to be separated from his family, because we could not, uh, we could not uh, enable his addiction. And it's been very painful. The good news is uh, 10 years of praying, God has answered our prayers and he is moving powerfully in my son's life. I'm very proud of all that God is doing. I'm proud of my son and uh, so thankful for where he, where he is now as to where he was. And anybody listening that has suffered any of these things, uh, I, I tell you, just keep turning into the Lord. And even when you feel like your prayers are not reaching the top of the ceiling of your room that you're praying in, they are. And prayer is powerful. It's helpless. Uh, you have nowhere to go but him. And, and that's power. Man, what a, what a great um, testimony. I, I think, you know, for a lot of our, a lot of our families, um, I, I think there's a, there's a tacit pressure in the church sometimes mm-hmm. that, we, that we feel like, um, we've stepped out in obedience or we've stepped out to, to do something that God's called us to do. And then it's, it's hard and it's there, there's pain and there's trauma and there's difficulty in the midst of it. And, and I think, you know, not, not to be too cliche, but, but to remember that, it, that in the body of Christ, it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's okay that, that we're, you know, to acknowledge the fact that we are, that we're hurting, that we're, you know, that we're experiencing pain, that we don't have answers and that we're, but, but it's not, it's not okay to turn that inward and turn that to ourselves. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's where, that's where we, you know, we, 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 we cast ourselves upon the Lord and, and ultimately trust God for, um, for the next breath and the next day. And, you know, the, everything that we need in order to to continue to move forward. You know, Rick, it's interesting. A lot of people will ask me when I share the story of my son, they'll ask me to, um, how could you prevent that from happening? (laughs) And I, you know, should I have done a better job? Of course. Uh, But, but the reality is I, I told one gentleman that we are, when you raise children, you're raising free moral agents. They can play for any team they want. Right. Uh, and sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that our relationship to Christ is so powerful and good and right that our children will naturally get it by osmosis. Well, they have to struggle the same way we struggle mm-hmm. and, and they have to come to a place of it becoming real to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that, that's where I see the power of the, of the scripture. Uh, my son knew, he knew the word, he knew what he was doing and, and got 
got caught up and swept away in it. Mm. And, uh, and, and that I have to believe that God alone can transform all of those experiences and that pain and suffering. Uh, I would say to people, don't worry about avoiding certain problems. And, you know, uh, even with the issue of adoption, you think, well, they're not from our family that, you know, could they be, could we be inheriting a problem? Look, they're human and, and you are human and, and we all desperately need grace and we need mercy and love them, love them. And when you're tempted to lean on the rules and talk about order and structure and truth and all those things are so important. I'm going to tell you what, 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 what children rebel against is a lack of relationship, what they call hypocrisy. And they say, we know what you say. We know what you think you believe, but we don't see it. And, and so the key is you press through and you increasingly give them the autonomy of their adulthood uh, and, and, and the responsibility of their adulthood. I'm not talking about when they're two and three, you understand. Right. Sure. But, but, but it is so important. Uh, and the other thing too, is learn how to pray because you're going to need it. Yep. You're going to need it. Yep. And that's, but I'll tell you what, God answers prayer. I had a guy in my church who I just did his funeral about two months ago. He died of COVID and, uh, he was kind of a, opinionated guy that always told you what was on top of his brain. And so you kind of learn as a pastor, kind of say, oh, yeah, okay, I got to go, you know, boom, and move on. <laughs> and so I avoided Ken uh, until one day he came up and, and he said something that really disturbed me. He said, uh, is that boy you're still messing up? Mm. And I wanted to punch him. Mm. Honestly, I just wanted to punch him. Mm. And I think the Lord, he helped, the spirit helped me not to punch Ken because it was, then I noticed <laughs> There were tears coming out of his eyes. I said, Ken, what's, why, why are you weeping? And he said, I pray for him every day. Mm. I, I've done three funerals of three men mm. in my church. Ken was one of them. And all three of them had made a pack to pray for my son. Wow. They never told me. Wow. I found out two of them at their funeral and that day that Ken and I talked. And, and I'm going to tell you, they're champions in my book, not just because of my self-centeredness, but because Listen, that's why you need a body of Christ. That's why you need a small group. That's why you need fellowship mm -hmm. with other believers. If you're a parent of any kind of child, and especially someone who's adopted children, you need support where people are praying and interceding mm -hmm. for you and for your child. Um, and, and I thank God for that. Man, it's such a good word. Um, I actually just spoke to a group of prospective adoptive parents this past weekend. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I confess to them, quite honestly, is that we in our family, um, we're very mindful of having people pray for us on the journey to get our, our kids. Mm. Um, and so we had these great networks of people that were, you know, helping us and praying for us and kind of, you know, like reading Facebook and all this stuff and right. finding out what to pray for. But, but along the way, um, we kind of learned the hard way that um, we needed that community after we got home. And, and that it was, it was more important. It was more vital once we got to our children. And as we started, you know, becoming a family and, and that process was underway that it was, it was great spiritual warfare. Like it was, it was, it was difficult work. And, um, you know, as, as my, you know, as my friend Russ Moore reminded me along the way to our first adoption, you know, Russ said, Hey, you're going to learn things about God that you would have no other way of knowing. Right. That's right. without going through this process, what he didn't tell me was that what I was going to learn 
is how much I'm not like him, right? right. Like right. The, the, the difficulty and, and, and how that kind of, you know, trauma and pain and, and those things, it, it, it kind of, un, you know, unsettles in us those, those things, many of them that are just not a whole lot like Jesus. Right. And, you know, and so my word to adoptive parents now is pray like your kids' lives depend on it and have other people pray like your kids' lives depend on it because they do. Right. You know, and, and so, man, thank you so much. I, I think that's a, uh, such an incredible reminder. Uh, something else that you said as, as you were talking was, um, you know, just understanding some of those practical mercy ministry kind of implications of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that one of the things that, that the Lord really has, has taken, taken you on a journey to see differently and to understand differently is um, racial reconciliation and kind of this idea of, of, of how in the body of Christ we, you know, we address the, you know, the issue of ethnicity and race. Um, and I'd love for you just to kind of unpack that sure. and talk a little bit about how the Lord has worked in your heart and, and just your convictions as a, as a pastor with regard to um culture and ethnicity. Yeah, that, there was a time where I, when I first moved to Alabama, I saw a very unique culture when it came to race and, and racial relationships in a community. I lived in a different world in Arizona. There were racial issues, but it wasn't what it is in Alabama. And there's a long history. And so I came, I immediately started speaking to it. I was 34 years old, pretty stupid. And <laughs> as far as understanding how people respond to the gospel. And so I'm speaking to it and I started getting passive resistance. Uh, which is a Southern skill. I mean, it's a skill of a high class <laughs> level. It, and, and so they, they would, uh, and so I realized one day I wasn't going to quote unquote grow this church if I was preaching this stuff. And so here's what I did. I, I self-soothed and I justified it this way. I said, mm-hmm. I didn't start this problem. I'm not the solution to this problem. This isn't my problem. I just need to preach the gospel. But the mm-hmm. day came where I realized that the brokenness between us as believers in our city in Mobile the brokenness between us. We live in we live in parallel universes. We have very little connectivity with each other. Where we're forced to in desegregation rules, or where we shop at the same place, but we just we manage to live our lives separate from each other, and that's not good. And that's not the gospel. And 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 yet we have on both sides people who believe the gospel profoundly. And so God started working in my heart after Ferguson. A group of pastors started meeting. I went and joined them. And I will be honest with you, I was scared. I I didn't want to be called a bigot. I didn't want to, because of my skin color, that I was something else. But I was, I was ignorant and curious at the same time. And by the way, let me say something. There's a power to those two things together. Hmm. If you'll admit your ignorance and if you'll remain curious, you'll ask good questions and you'll begin to grow. And, and I, I sat silent, which is unlike me. I sat silent <laughs> listening because I, I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Hmm. And, and so what happened, though, is I began to realize something. And I've been at that table with those brothers and sisters now, a lot of pastors, some in the legal profession, a couple of judges, amazing men and women, black and white. And, 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 and that what we call it the pledge group. And we made a pledge that we would be kind to one another. Mm. That's pretty biblical, that we would smile at one another. I think it was Mother Teresa said that a smile is the first act of love. And I, here I am quoting a Catholic. I'm a good Southern Baptist. So anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but it's true. And, and she's right. Uh, but so uh, at the end of the day, we, I began to hear things that I never heard. I'm a student of history. 
And I'm just telling you, Rick, I, I heard stories not from the 1930s and 1950s. I heard stories from 25 days ago uh, mm-hmm. of how the impact of this divide between us. So we started doing an event called Shrink the Divide. And, and the purpose was to help call our city, especially the body of Christ, to do everything possible to shrink that divide. And, and you know, it's, it's probably not as, as, we haven't gone as far as we wish, but we've, we've come a mighty long way. And it has changed my perspective. It's changed my relationships. And, and I cherish the relationships God has given me through this. I think we now need this as a nation. I think the whole nation of believers needs to say, wait a second. I've got to stop forming my opinions from what I see through politics or what I see through the news. Mm-hmm. I've got to go what the scripture says. And the scripture is very clear that we are agents, if not ambassadors of reconciliation, that our mission is to be reconciled to one another. Why does the Bible put so much emphasis on that? It's because that's our credibility. If, if you see two people that are very different, have nothing or little in common, and they're loving one another in obvious ways, unified in the gospel, it makes an impression on the lost heart and mind. Mm. But the, what we don't realize is the impact of that distance between each other. People look at us and say, you're hypocrites. Quite frankly, you preach a gospel that says, whosoever will may come. There, there's a Revelation 5 perspective that mm. most people of a conservative nature like myself don't have. That at the end of this thing, we're all going to be there together, every tribe, every tongue. And it's about him. It's not about us. So I'm praying, God, help me to live that way today. And, and, and this, I never intended for this to be such a big issue in my life. I just wanted to be faithful as a pastor. Well, I never in my life been called a liberal until I started doing this. People, some in my church said, he's a liberal. He's gone liberal on us. How? How is that liberal? I understand why people say things like that, but I, I don't, and it doesn't wound me because I understand this. I understand the fear that they say it with, because mm. I have lived in that fear. Mm. But I'll tell you what, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And, and their lives will be richer. And I'm so proud of my people. <laughs> I mean, redneck as they are, they, they are doing extraordinary things to love people who don't look like them, think like them, or vote like them. Man, that's awesome. You know, I, I think I, I hear you say that and I hear you you know, talk about a, a Revelation 5 vision, you know, for the church. And, right. and think, I think back to something that we say to adoptive families a lot, um, which is that that as we, you know, as we're as we're doing adoption, as we're as we're bringing, you know, kids into our home, um, that's not the gospel. Right. Like it's not the it. But it's but it's a, but it's a picture and it's stepping into something that is, that's broken by sin and broken by the fall, right? Right. It's stepping into a condition. And, and I I think of it like taking my kids to Sam's on Saturday, right? Like I've got two boys who would love nothing more than to just stay at Sam's and eat off the sample carts and, you know, just have a ball, but Sam's doesn't really like that they kind of have a, they kind of have an agenda against it. Right. Because their agenda is they want, they want you to get a little taste so that you'll, so that you'll, you'll get the whole big bag or the whole big box. Right. Right. And that, that when you and I are doing these kinds of things, I think there are a lot of people that go around in fear of losing the gospel when truly 
all we're doing is, is we're, we're, we're applying gospel thinking and applying gospel ethic to very real world problems and things that are consequences of the fall. Mm-hmm. But we're putting a taste on the lips of, of people of Revelation chapter five. Right. We're testifying to the fact that there's a day coming when none of this stuff is going to exist, when right. all of these things that fracture us and all of these results of sin are not going to exist. Right. And, and we have a king who's going to set it all right um, because he's already accomplished the work. And so we can be confident. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we get we get caught up in, you know, throwing these these political labels around and, and talking in terms of liberal and conservative and right. all that kind of thing. When it, when truly what we need to be throwing around is these are just kingdom citizen kinds of things. Yeah. You know, oh, my and, goodness, yes. and, and so in the, the neighborhood I live in, the culture I live in, what's my responsibility unto the Lord? What, what, what does the Lord require of me? Um, and we have to ask that, that question. Let me tell you what's happened to the church. And this, I think this is true. I can't speak for other churches, but for mine and, and for the tribe I'm from, I think it, it may be a true statement for many of us. And that is that our churches have become places of isolation. Mm-hmm. They've become places where we hide out with people who look like us, think like us, and vote like us. It was an interesting article in the Washington Post in August about the election that was coming up last, uh, last November. And it said, it's stunning, it said that 65% of Americans don't know another person who doesn't vote like them. Wow. You know, and, and I thought, oh, man. So I started diving into that. But here's what got me. They said that people sort their lives in such a way that eventually they're around people who look like them, think like them and vote like them. So they are stunned that people could actually vote for, you know, candidate B. And, and so what does that say about the church? Our churches have become unwittingly these places where everybody looks like us, thinks like us and votes like us. And so we, are, we, we don't even think about the other and the people in our community that we need to be reaching out to. And that, our, that it, the Revelation 5 vision of a church is that it glorifies the mm-hmm. Lord when people from such divergent places and views and opinions and politics can come together on Sunday, bow at the feet of Jesus and worship him and serve him together. And there's no sense to it. There's no, there's no logic to it in the world. But it's, it's a biblical gospel logic that drives it. It's not a liberal agenda. And, and so at the end of the day, that's what drove our pledge group. That's what's driving our church. That's what drives me. And I, in the midst of it, I haven't lost an ounce of conservatism. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I've gained. I've gained something more of a tender heart. And I've gained a heart that I think, I hope, is more like Jesus. And, and it's not my doing. It's his. And so, so guess what? Are there not issues around us that we need to be looking at? Even think about children, having children or adopting children. What, what's the typical Western approach was, well, can we afford it? Can we afford it? No, you cannot afford children <laughs> on any level. Right. Even if you could biologically produce them, you cannot afford them. That's not, the, that's not how God rolls. Uh, right. he, he, he puts a love in our heart for one another. He, we bear offspring, but they're not our possession and they are not our little blank slates to make in our image. They are his. He's the, um, they are the, the Imago Dei says he made them in his image. And that's true for every race that's ever existed. By the way, there's only one race and there's only one problem and it's sin. It's a human race. One problem and it's sin. There's only one solution and it's Jesus Christ. And so at the end of the day, we have to see ourselves this way. And I'm going to tell you, 
John Perkins has helped me more than anybody else put this in perspective. If you don't know who John Perkins is, look him up, Google him, buy his books, read. He, he's a man who's been working diligently for gospel reconciliation all of his life. He was beat almost to death by a police officer in Jackson, Mississippi in the late fifties, mm -hmm. fled to California, got saved in California. God called him to preach and sent him back to Mississippi where he has lived the entirety of his life preaching the gospel. Now, here's what's important. He said, Ed, I don't call people bigots. He said, because that's offensive. That's like calling me an African-American. He said, calling me the N-word. Uh, he, he said, let's stop. Let's not go there. Let's just start right here. What does the gospel tell us our relationship is to one another? Mm. And, and, and you know what the gospel says? I have to love my enemies. Right. So even if you're a threat to me, I, I, I cannot not love you, whatever that looks like. And uh, I think the church has fallen in love with pol political power. And I think the church has fallen in love with, with our possessions and our positions. And in fact, we need to fall in love with Jesus again. And I'm praying for revival in our land. I'm asking God to baptize us uh, by his power, through his spirit, to, to love him first and foremost. Because I think that's the solution for where we're at. And I do have hope. I do have hope. And, and, and ministries like Lifeline, I think, are so important because you are facilitating uh, a way for people to engage in a way that really makes a difference in the lives of human beings. Well, Ed, one last thing that I wanted to kind of delve into, and I think you pretty much already answered it on, on some level, but uh, we know that there's, uh, there's something uh, fairly significant coming in the future, Lord willing, um, in a few weeks for you as you allow your name to be placed in nomination for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And a lot of these things that we've talked about today are issues that are swirling around mm -hmm. uh, the den denomination and, and are important to uh, lots of us as believers. And, and so I, I just love it if you could just take just a couple of minutes and and just talk about why it is it's not like you don't have things to do right it's, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not like you're look it's not like you're looking around and, and just bored and but yeah, um, and not only that rick i have the highest office that god could call me to right it's being pastor of a local church right and so if the lord were to allow me to serve in this way i would serve uh, a convention of churches, 47,000 to 50,000 churches uh, that are attempting to do something most unique. They're attempting to work together to get the gospel to the nations, mm -hmm. that Revelation 5 vision of every tribe and tongue, and to plant churches all over North America. Now, we, we support that with six seminaries. We support that with other agencies that look out for liberty, religious liberty, look out for the, the people that are suffering in difficult times, and disasters. And, and, and so we're, we're very grateful for our mission boards. We're grateful for this great convention. Um, I, I don't, uh, here's the bottom line. I, we prayed because we were encouraged by friends to consider praying, putting our name in, my name in. And Kathy and I prayed together and felt very strongly the Lord told us to do it. There are four candidates. And so we're not picking a pope for the SBC, but we're picking a, a person who will help give direction and vision. And I believe that we need one. We need somebody who who understands the culture and the issues of the culture enough to be able to bring the gospel to bear on it. Here's what I want my church to be, and I want I want the Southern Baptist Convention to be. 
Uh, in Mobile, Alabama, when there is a child who needs to be fostered, they ought to be thinking of the believers in that town that do it. When, when there's a problem that needs to be solved, it, they ought to be thinking of the believers in that town who will rise up and do it. When, when there's people going hungry, they ought to know that somebody's going to feed them. When there's, there's needs, that people need job training, all, all those issues. When people are coming out of addiction, uh, they, they need to know that there's a place that loves them and welcomes them to be come back into the normalization of their lives. And, and, and so that's what every local church should be. And, and so Southern Baptists are unique in that we are a local church convention. Uh, the headquarters of the SBC, it's often said, is a local church. And so uh, I, I'm honored to be a part of one of those local churches. And if God would, in his providence, put me in that role, I will do my best by his spirit to lead and to lead us uh, to a hopeful future. Uh, there's, there are people that are saying very dire things, and, and we're going to face big problems. But I, I am very hopeful because I love this people, Southern Baptists. They're, the reason I am a Southern Baptist is they came to get us. My dad was an alcoholic. We never darkened the door of a church. But they came and told us about Jesus, changed my dad's life, and it changed my life, my mom, and our entire family, and changed the trajectory of our lives. And so I'm grateful for this people, and that's what I want us to continue being. Man. Well, Ed, um, I'm grateful for you. And Thanks. we are thankful for, uh, for the fact that you are following obediently and, and uh, what the Lord has uh, led you to do, to be placed into nomination. And, um, and just, man, thanks for sharing just your pastor's heart with us today, um, really helping to, to frame up how, uh, how local churches can be engaged in, in caring for the vulnerable and, and how, we can, how we can do that while maintaining the, the main thing being the main thing. Amen. So, man, thank you much, and Lord bless you, and uh, we appreciate you being with us. Thanks, Rick, and God bless Lifeline and your ministry. Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.